Genesis 1, verse 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Friends, it is possible to hear without actually hearing. Give you an example. I can listen to Bruce Adolph's Piano Puzzler on public radio and, and hear nothing but generic classical music floating through my head. Or Fred Child, the host of Performance Today, can listen to the Piano Puzzler on public radio and hear Old Lang Syne in the style of Dmitry Shostakovich. Both of us, you would have heard that, right, Josh? Both of us are hearing, but only one of us is, is hearing the song for what it really is. Think about that. It's also possible to see without actually seeing. Example, my boys can look at an, an ancient Greek scroll and see nothing but lines and squiggles. Or I can look at the same scroll and see the beginning of the Gospel of John. Bo both of us are seeing, we're looking at the same thing, but only one of us is actually seeing what's really there. You can, you can pick any area of life, I would argue, any realm of, of human experience, and in that realm or that area, hearing something for what it really is or, or seeing something for what it really is ultimately starts with answering this question, church. When God hears that or God sees that, what does God hear? What does God see? Why, why do I say that? Why, why is what God hears or God sees critical? Well, because of what the whole first chapter of Genesis taught us last Sunday about the universe in which we live. Namely, that God created all of it. Right? So, so all that there is around us, all that you see, all that you hear, all that you taste or touch or smell, all of that reflects the creative activity of an all-powerful God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, everything. And that means that the ultimate answer to the question what is this? Whatever you're looking at or thinking about, what, what is this? What is this? The ultimate answer to that question is not found by asking, what do I hear 
or what do I see, but what did God create this to be? That's critical. We have to start with God's creative intent. God's original design, if we're going to have any hope of of identifying something or perceiving something for what it really is. In other words, I'd summarize it this way. You have not seen something for what it actually is, what it really is, until you have learned to see the way God sees. Psalm 36, verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life. And in your light do we see light. Now, praise God, his light's not hidden. It's not disguised, okay? The the divine perspective that enables us to see something for what it really is hasn't been concealed from us, okay? It's been revealed to us in the pages of his word. Why do I say that? Psalm 119 Verse 130, the unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So we need to see the way God sees. We need to see in light of his light. And he has not hidden his light. He has revealed his light through the pages of his inerrant word. And I would argue that obtaining that understanding seeing what God sees, and starting there, could not be more important than when it comes to answering this question. What is a human being? What is a human being? Or to put it in more existential terms, who am I? And who are you? When you look in the mirror, in the morning. What do you see? When you're waving to your neighbor, or you're watching the news, or you're, you're talking with your kids, or, or meeting with a coworker, what, what do you see? Well, I'll tell you what God sees. He sees an image of himself. He sees a reflection, a likeness of his eternal person and glory. That's what God sees. Why do I say that? Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Here's what that means, friend. It means that a random collision between a sperm and an egg is not the reason you exist. God is the reason you exist. Because God created you. And and to a world that would say you are whatever you want to be or whatever you make yourself to be, hear God saying to the world and you in it this morning, you are what I have created you to be. That's who you are. According to our passage for this morning, that means that a human being is a person who reflects God and represents God. Reflects God and represents God. That's the central message of this this entire passage that Beth just read for us. To, To be a human being in the fullest sense of that word is to be a person who reflects God and represents God. Reflects God, represents God. And and this passage supports that claim by making several points about the way God created us. It's going to be the structure of my message this morning. So point number one, God created us in his image. Point number two, God created us male and female. Point number three, God created us to rule the world on his behalf. By the way, whenever you're listening to a sermon and you hear the pastor say, here are my points, you should be immediately thinking, do I see those points in God's word? Okay, this isn't a launch pad for my reflections. All right? This is the word of God and it is my job to faithfully deliver it to you. So if you heard those points, you think, well, duh, I could have gotten that. (laughs) Congratulations! 
You're going to get it again. Point number one, God created us in his image. Suffice it to say, in the middle of this sixth day of creation, something unexpected happens. We're in the middle of the sixth day, something unexpected happens. Everything God's created up to this point has been introduced by this simple phrase, let there be. So let there be light, let there be sky, let there be earth and seas and plants and trees and stars and fish and birds and and beasts of the earth. It, It all comes to exist by divine fiat, by the sheer power of his spoken word. Now look at verse 26, where Beth started reading. Something unexpected happens. Then God said, let us make. Let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be. Let us make. Friend, the the divine plurality suggested by that little word, us, that hints at a truth that the New Testament, the second part of our Bibles, eventually unfolds as the triune nature of the eternal God. That he is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. But God's triune nature isn't the focus of verse 26. The focus is that the fullness of God is personally and intimately involved in creating something new and distinct from everything that's come before it. That's the focus. What is that? What's a creature called man? And if you look at verse 27, you'll see that three times we're told it is God who created us. So what does that mean? It means that we did not create ourselves. It means that we did not evolve from a different species. God God envisioned us. God formed us and God gave us the gift of life. But but it's not just the fullness of his personal involvement that sets you and me apart from the entire rest of creation. It does, in a sense, but something else sets us apart even more. It's the fact that we're created after the pattern of God himself. So, So in verses 11 and 12, God creates plants and trees according to their kind. In verse 21, God creates every sea creature according to its kind. In verse 25, he creates the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. But listen, friend, he does not create man according to its kind. He creates man, verse 27, according to his own image or his own likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Now at this point, I think we have to do well and be careful to remember the words of John 4.24, where Jesus himself says, God is spirit. God is spirit. Which means that from eternity past, God has not existed as a physical being like we do. So, Jesus' words remind us that bearing God's image does not mean that we are identical to God or a carbon copy of God. We are like God and we represent God. We have an inherent dignity and worth and value that makes us far more than the animal at the top of the food chain, okay? We, we are in an entirely different category from everything in creation. And that means, verse 26, that like God, we have dominion or authority over the earth. Okay, that means, verse 27, that like God, we are a being in fellowship. We're not solitary creatures. We're we're social creatures. We complement each other as male and and female. That means, verse 28, that we can communicate with God. 
And we're responsible to God. We're we're able to understand the words God speaks to us. And we're obligated to obey the words God speaks to us. That's just some of what it means to be made in the image of God. Notice in verse 22, look there. That God blesses the animals with fruitfulness and the ability to multiply. But when God blesses us, in verse 28, what does he do? He commands us to multiply. He speaks to us personally. No no other living thing has the ability to relate with God the way that we do. Our our soul and our spiritual life, our our ethical and and moral sense, our conscience, our our intellect, our, our reason, and a thousand other what I'll call communicable attributes or or characteristics that we share with God, ways we resemble God, sets us apart from the entire rest of creation and gives us an identity and worth that is utterly unique. Listen to Herman Bavinck reflect on this. He writes, the entire world is a revelation of God. Amen. A mirror of his virtues and perfections. Every creature is in his own way and according to his own measure, an embodiment of a divine thought. But among all creatures, only man is in the image of God. The highest and richest revelation of God and therefore head and crown of the entire creation. I hope you're sensing at this point that that this is a pretty significant doctrine (laughs) because this is the Bible's starting point to the question, answering the question, who am I? Who are you? And the answer is that you are a creature made in the image of God. And that has some pretty serious implications. And I want to to highlight just two of them this morning. First, this first one concerns the way we think about our own identity or who we are. We tend to think that that our identity is something that we discover in our desires, discover in our desires, or forge through our achievements. So for example, if I discover or experience same-sex desires in me, then that must mean that I am gay. If I get passed over for a promotion at work, that must mean that I am a failure. Okay, so in the former case, I'm looking to my sexual desires to discover my identity. In the latter case, I'm looking to my job performance to forge or create my identity. You know what's wrong with both those scenarios? (laughs) Your fundamental identity as a human being isn't the product of your sexual desires or your job performance. Your identity as a human being is found in the fact that you are a creature made in the image of God. It's your identity. And so the first and most important answer to the question, who am I, always starts with this. I am an image bearer of the living God. And you can say that with confidence because God first said that about you. So don't try to create an identity for yourself, friend, when God has already given you an identity that is infinitely greater and more valuable and glorious than anything you could discover in yourself or forge at work. Receive it as a gift. Your your worth and value doesn't come from what you discover inside of you or what you create out of your life. Your worth and value and significance come from the fact God made you in his image. It's so important. And and there's, there's tremendous freedom in that. What do I mean by that? Well, it's not a freedom to become whatever we want to be. Hear that. It's a freedom to be what God created us to be. I'll give you an example. A fish who decides to be a rabbit and jumps out of the water 
and starts flopping around on the land isn't free. A rabbit who decides to be a fish and jumps off a cliff into the ocean isn't free. You know what they are? They're as good as dead. (laughs) What's my point? Well, my point is that we have a God-given identity. Okay? We're, We're image bearers of God, which means we only experience true freedom when we choose to live accordingly. We're reflecting the image of our creator in every area of life. Okay, by the way, that's the secret to true, true joy. If you're ever wondering, how is it that these Christian people are just so stinking happy? I mean, you're, you're on like, you're, you're sweating to death on the treadmill next to me, and you're just like looking over and smiling like, how are you? I think, why is she so happy? Well, you know why, if, if we're actually living in the fullness of all that God's made us to be, we, we are happy? It's because we're living in glad submission to God's design in every area of life. Not perfectly, but faithfully. And when you're a rabbit that finds joy in being a rabbit, you're happy. When you're a fish that understands you're a fish, you are happy. You're not a happy fish if you jump out of the water and start flapping around. Nor are you a happy rabbit if you jump off a cliff and start trying to swim. Okay, God, God created us to be who he created us to be. It's, it's his divine design that we need to understand and take our cues from, okay? Here, here's the second application. The first was with our identity. second one's with how we see other people. Okay, when, we, when we look at other people, hear this, friend. We are not seeing them for who they really are until we see them as an image bearer of the living God. We're not. Here's what I mean by this. I'm, I'm not proud of this, but here's the truth. There are many times that I consciously or subconsciously look at someone and immediately say to myself, oh, I know who that person is. That's a rich person. Or a poor person. They're smart. Or they're uneducated. They're fun to talk to. They're awkward. They're a Christian. Or they're not a Christian. They look safe. They look dangerous. I mean, all of his observations could be true, right? So what's the problem? Well, the problem is that I'm not seeing the way God sees. That's the problem. I'm not starting with what God says. I'm not beginning with what God sees. And therefore, everything that I will ever think or decide I know about who that person is will be totally off from square one. So, to be very practical, when you're walking back to your car after a show at the Altria Theater and you see a group of young men playing drums on the sidewalk, do you see someone who needs to get a life and get a job? Would you see an image bearer of the living God? When Larry Nasser's face is plastered all over the news, weeks. What do you see? Do you see a child molester? Or do you see an image bearer of the living God? I'm not saying, friends, that the only thing that's ever true about someone is that they bear God's image. I am saying that until you look at someone and see the image of God in them, you are not seeing them for who they really are. That's what I'm saying. And our, and our functional blindness to who people really are is ultimately, let's be honest, it's just an expression of pride. That's what it is. So we arrogantly decide that we know who that person is 
instead of humbly listening as God tells us who they are and shows us how to love them accordingly. I love how John Calvin makes this point about loving in light of what we see. We are not to consider that what men merit of themselves, but to look upon the image of God in all men, to which we owe all honor and love. Therefore, whatever man you meet who, who needs your aid, you have no reason to refuse to help him. Say, he is contemptible and worthless. But the Lord shows him to be one to whom he has deigned to give the beauty of his image. Say that he does not deserve even your least effort for his sake. But the image of God, which recommends him to you, think about that. Does the image of God recommend people to you? It should is worthy of you giving yourself and all your possessions. Do you live like that, friend? On the plane, in line at a concert, when you're stuck in traffic, you look out on masses of people, what do you see? Hear the word of God to you today. You are not seeing what actually is until you have seen what God sees. And that is an image bearer of the living God. And by the way, do you know what one of that will immediately start to, in many cases, strengthen and grow in your life? It's personal evangelism. Because when you start to see people the way God sees them, that's not a nuisance. That's not a dumb driver. That's not a slow Chick-fil-A order person who's halting my lunch break. That's an image bearer of God. When you see them, people the way God sees, then suddenly we start to see them with God's affection, God's compassion, God's love, and we find our desire to share Jesus with them growing if you're a Christian. If, if you look at your life and say, you know what? I am weak in personal evangelism. Be honest and ask God, Lord, would you help open my eyes that I would see people the way you see? Point number one, God created us in his image. Point number two, God created us male and female. Created us in his image. He created us male and female. I hope you noticed that from the first day of creation, God takes great joy in making distinctions or making separations. It's a reflection of the order and structure of his own character. So what does he do? He, he separates light from darkness, the water in the clouds from the water in the sea. He doesn't just create one kind of plant or tree. He creates lots of different kinds of plants or trees. He doesn't create one kind of sea creature or bird. He creates every kind of sea creature or bird. Okay, it's the same with the livestock, the creeping things, the beasts of the earth. It's obvious if you're reading carefully that God delights in diversity and God revels in diversity. He loves distinctions. And so when we come to verse 27 and to the crowning jewel of God's handiwork in creation, creating man, we're not surprised to find another distinction. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. Now, if you were here last Sunday, I hope you heard me say that, that Genesis as a whole is an orienting book. It's one of the most orienting books in the Bible. And, and that's really helpful in a disoriented culture like ours, especially when it comes to this whole area of human sexuality. So let's, let's note a couple things before we under, seek to understand what God means here in verse 27. Okay, first, it's worth noting up front that God is very careful in the first chapter of the Bible to address the issue of human sexuality. That is God's way of reminding us, listen, 
that sexual ethics is not a conservative issue or a progressive or liberal issue. It is a biblical issue. Hear that. And therefore, in what I'm about to say, I'm not seeking to be traditional or progressive. I'm seeking to be biblical. And in so doing, I'm going to try to communicate in just a few minutes, not what is pleasing in the sight of the world, but what is true in the sight of God. I might also add that for some, I think my comments, I'm just building the tension right, like, what are his comments? Just tell me. My comments are probably going to raise more questions, especially if you haven't spent much time in the church, than answers. And you know what? Hear the pastor say, that's really good. That's really good, okay? One of my goals as a pastor is to provoke you to wrestle with God's word and to to fight for clarity on how to connect the truth of Scripture with the trenches of real life. And if I could add, by the way, that's why church membership is so important. (laughs) Because we can only do that, fight for clarity on how the truth of God's word connects to all the issues of real life with help. God helps us through other people. We need community to do this. Okay, so so let me add, and then we'll dive in here to what what exactly is this verse telling us? That that if you're struggling with what it means to honor God with your sexuality, uh, with what it means to be a man of God or a woman of God, if you're struggling with that, go public with that. Okay, not on Twitter, not on Facebook. I have no clue what it means to be a man. No, go to a Christian friend or a pastor and say, I need help. This whole area of sexuality, what it means to be a man of God, a woman of God, I'm struggling. I'm struggling. You're not alone. And we can help each other with that. So keep that in mind, okay? I'm talking about this issue, about being created male and female church, because God talks about this issue. And because God talks about this issue, the church needs to talk about this issue. So please hear me on this. Our message, our message is not the world's gone crazy with sex, hide your eyes, and guard your children. I hear that sometimes. That's not our message. You know what our message is? Our message is God created sex for his glory and our good. And to whatever degree our sexuality has been corrupted by sin and damaged by sin and broken by sin, we proclaim to the world that we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who is mighty to save and can redeem every area of life, starting with our sexuality. That's our message. It's not, oh, I didn't see that, run and hide. It is, Jesus is here to save. That's our message. By the way, parents, the way you talk about sex with your kids will incline them toward one of those two messages. Be careful. So let me make several brief points from verse 27. Though there could be a whole sermon series on this. Number one. I'm going to have five of these, I think. First, sexuality is something God creates for us not something we create for ourselves. Friends, if, if you get that wrong, you will get everything else wrong. Okay? What, what does verse 27 say? It doesn't say that we evolved into male and female. It doesn't say that, that men decided to be male or female. It says God created us male and female. Male and female, he created them. Okay? That means your sexuality is not a curse. It's a gift. It's the divine design of an all-wise creator. And in a world that is corrupted by sin, it won't be an easy thing. But fundamentally, it is a good thing because it's a God thing. So remember what God says at the end of the sixth day, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made except for sex. Nope, he saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. Very good. Second, our sexuality is not incidental to our humanity. It is an essential part of our identity as image bearers of God. So he created some of us 
to bear his image as men. He created some of us to bear his image as women. That does not make God an androgynous being. (laughs) It simply means that our sexual identity as men or women is one of the most important ways that we will reflect God and represent God. One of the most important ways. Third, our biological sex reveals our gender identity. What do I mean by that? Well, the fact that God created some of us with male parts and some of us with female parts is his way of clearly telling us the specific way in which we are called to understand and live out our sexuality in the world. Our our maleness and femaleness are not shades of personal preference on a a fluid spectrum of of gender identity. They, They are a binary part of the created order and are assigned to us by virtue of the way that God in his infinite wisdom has physically created us. Now, because this is very controversial, I have to elaborate on this point. The way we experience our biological sex, our our internal sense, if you would, of gender identity in a fallen world will inevitably reflect the corrupting effects of sin. Okay, that's a reality that's going to come into clear focus a little later in Genesis 3. But, hear this, that doesn't change the nature of God's original design or the gender identity that we are called to pursue. That doesn't mean that we capitulate, this is not what I'm calling for, to cultural stereotypes of masculinity or femininity. I'm not saying that. I am saying that we embrace our God-given gender identity and fight to live out our God-given gender identity in biblical ways that communicate to the people around us our desire to be the man or the woman that God created us to be and calls us to be. That's what I'm saying. Even when that submission requires resisting internal desires to the contrary. Why is that so important? Because we don't discover our identity in our desires and we don't forge our identity through our performance. Our identity comes from the authoritative word of God as it reflects the creative intent and design of an all-wise God. Fourth, I told you I'd raise more questions than answers. Fourth, Men and women are equal in value as image bearers of God. Hear that. Men and women are equal in value as image bearers of God. Sadly, church, that has not been the majority opinion in the history of civilization or in some cases, the history of the church. Okay? So men have consistently been perceived as more important, more valuable, more dignity than women. That is not biblical. It's not what scripture teaches, okay? He created men in his own image. He created women in his own image. And his image is not partitioned or divided between them. (laughs) Okay, we we reflect his image in unique ways. Different ways. But one sex does not bear God's image any more than the other sex. Okay? Equal in value as image bearers of God. By the way, Let this be an encouragement to those of you who are single. I mean this with all sincerity, okay? You are not waiting for marriage to bear the image of God. You're not, all right? Single men and women and married men and women reflect God's image in different ways. But a married man or woman does not reflect God's image any more than a single woman does. 
And a married man, though he reflects it differently, does not reflect it any more than a single man does. We have to remember that. We have to remember that. Fifth, men and women image God in complementary ways. Okay, so so we're going to spend more time on this in in a few weeks in Genesis 2. But for now, note what God says, verse 28, immediately after revealing his design in creating us male and female. What does God say? Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. At risk of saying the obvious, that calling... That command to to fill the earth by producing offspring is not a process in which men and women play the same role. And all the men in the room said, (laughs) yeah, praise be to God. That much is obvious on a purely biological level. But hear this, that biological distinction between men and women both reflects and points to a broader role distinction that will come into greater focus in Genesis 2. Okay, in other words, in other words, the fact that God has not given us the same role in producing offspring leads us to expect that he will not assign the same roles in other areas of life as well. Bottom line, Our God-given sexuality is a precious gift, church. It's a gift. It's a good gift. And it's it's only when we embrace his design for us as male and female that we reflect his image to the world and we experience the joy of being who God made us to be. So important. So God created us in his image. He created us male and female. Last point, number three, God created us to rule the world on his behalf. To rule the world on his behalf. So in verse 26, look there. God entrusts us with dominion over the rest of the created world. And that that points to to something I mentioned earlier that I hope you're hearing throughout this message, okay? That, That to be a human being in the fullest sense of the word is to reflect God and represent God. And that work of exercising dominion brings into focus in a particular way our call to represent Okay, now look at verse 28. Verse 28 helps us understand exactly what this dominion God gives to us in verse 26 involves. It's kind of like God double-clicking on verse 26. What's What's it involve? And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So exercising dominion over the earth as God's representatives means we do at least two things. Two things from God's word. First, we fill the earth. Okay, if you you are a married couple, please hear this. Bearing children is not a lifestyle option. Should we have kids? Should we not have kids? I don't think I really want to have kids. I think I'd rather travel the world. No. No, bearing children is part of the essence of God's plan for your marriage. Population growth is not an inherent evil. It's a reflection of God's blessing on our lives. So important. Now, thinking of what I prayed earlier this morning, does that mean, does that mean that a couple who is physically unable to have children for a season of time or for their whole married life is failing to obey God in some way. No, it does not. Absolutely not. I'm simply speaking of God's original design and and our willingness to embrace his design. Once, Once sin entered the world, the ability to conceive and bear children was no longer guaranteed. It was marked by pain and sorrow. And in fact, it's the very priority of producing offspring that makes makes the pain of infertility so, so difficult, church. It's so difficult. And it's why we need to exercise particular compassion and care as a church family 
toward those who are struggling to conceive or having difficulty conceiving, okay? If that's you, it is not a mark of shame. It is part of our experience of sorrow and suffering in a broken world. And if that is you, as I said earlier, you need help. You can't navigate that sorrow alone. You, you need the church. You need community. And let's be willing to ask and answer hard questions about hard areas. Two things. First, we fill the earth. Second, we exercise dominion or subdue the earth. We subdue the earth. Okay? So to subdue the earth is not to ravage the earth or exploit the earth or abuse the earth to satisfy our materialistic, self-centered, individual greed. It's not. It means we steward God's creation by using it and, and developing it to enhance human flourishing. That's what it means. And I'm not just talking about farmers and construction workers, okay? I'm talking about artists and authors and teachers and computer programmers and cashiers and nurses and waiters and math guys that I don't understand <laughs> and, and an infinite variety of other jobs that, that take the created wealth that God has given to us, not just wealth in the physical world, but wealth in the realm of the mind and use all of it and develop all of it to serve and bless the people around them. That's what subduing the earth means. It's why this 28th verse, Genesis 1:28, is often called the cultural mandate. Cultural mandate because it is in God's command to subdue the earth, God's command to subdue the earth, that we find in our work much more than just a way to pay the bills. Much more. Why? Because in subduing the earth, God is inviting us and calling us to represent his rule by imitating his creative work. So think about that. Do you need a job to pay the bills? Yes. But when you go to work this week, are you just going to work to pay the bills? Well, maybe in your mind, but in reality, do you see the way God sees? It's far more than that. It's an invitation. It's a call from God to join him in imitating his creative work. On every level. We'll see more about this in a couple weeks, but that means there's unbelievable dignity in work. It's, it's a hard thing in a fallen world, but fundamentally, it's a good thing. A good thing. Friends, to conclude, being a human being, in the fullest sense of the word, it means that we are like God, we reflect God, and we represent God. Reflect God, represent God. And, and God's enabled us to do that by creating us in his image, creating us male and female, and creating us to rule the world on his behalf. Okay, so the first one determines the way we relate to God. The second one determines the way we relate to one another. And the third one governs the way that we relate to the world. So our, our humanity is most fully expressed when we're honoring God's design in all three of those relationships. That's what Genesis 1 is saying. But none of us do that perfectly. We don't. We don't. We sin. And to the degree we do, we reflect another image and represent another rule. And it is not the image of God. It's not the kingdom of God. It's the image of the evil one and the kingdom of darkness. And because of that temptation which we have universally fallen into, friends, we praise God for Jesus. We praise God for Jesus. Why? Because in his life on earth, he reflected God perfectly and represented God perfectly. Hebrews 2. And if you're willing to confess your sin, your failure to both reflect God and represent God and, and cry out to Jesus for salvation, that he will unite you to himself and in union with him, friend, you will experience the blessing of right relationship with God, right relationship with one another, and right relationship with the world. That's the invitation of the gospel. 
that the blessing that God gives us in verse 28 is the very blessing that we lose on account of our sin and the very blessing God restores to us through the work of Christ. It's, it's Jesus who's what? The radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He was at work in us today, transforming us into his own image from one degree of glory to another so that we progressively become the man or the woman that God created us to be. So church, I charge you when it comes to answering the question, who am I? Who are you? And how do I, how do I live and be who God made me to be? I charge you to set your hope fully on the work of Christ. And in the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created in the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Let's ask for God's help to do that. Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful that you are both the God who created us in your image and on this side of sin, you are actively at work recreating us in your image. Lord Jesus, I pray that to whatever degree, being who you made us to be feels like nothing but a heavy yoke or a weight. It doesn't feel like glory or freedom. I pray, Father, that as we sing this song, your spirit would open our eyes to understand and believe anew that from start to finish, this is a work that you are doing in us and in our children and in our families, and in our friends. Lord, our prayer is that you would be faithful to your word and complete the good work you have begun. Help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, confident that it is you who is at work in us, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. Lord, I pray we would do that in every area of life. I pray especially right now that you'd help us to reflect and represent you in the way we handle your money. Lord, we bring our tithes and offerings to you as we sing this song, not because you need our money, but because you want our hearts. And in giving to you, we ask for help to show the world that you are a faithful and generous God. In Jesus' name.